Well, stand with me as we read uh, the word of the Lord. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 through 16. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard for Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, not, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married and bear children. Keep house and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and, not, and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widowed indeed. Let's pray. Father, we know that this uh, passage is very specific to a specific church with a specific issue. And so um, I just ask you to help me to decipher the parts that are principally based for us today and the parts that are unique to Ephesus and to really grab the truth from it the way you originally intended. And we do have, there's lots to say to us as a church and the way we structure our lives, and the way we live it out, and the way we handle the crises in the future. We just ask you, God, to uh, help us understand the principles here and to apply them to our culture. We believe that your word is transcendent through time. It doesn't matter if you were Adam and Eve or you're in our generation. That's the same truth for everybody, and there's no change depending on culture. We just um, look for these truths now to be given to us, and... Uh, that we understand what's going on here. So look forward to our time and that we be encouraged in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated with me. Kevin, every time I go to play slideshow, it goes blank on my screen. So I guess I'll just have to look at that then. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just use the arrows. I can't see, but that's okay. Well, as I typically do before each sermon, is yell at you. <laughs> that was a little bit too strong there. But uh, I'm excited to be here. This is, what can I say? <laughs> well, normally I give you a reminder of where I left off um, from the previous weeks. And it's been a while since we've been in Timothy, so it's probably important we do that. But the last time we were together, uh, we looked at Paul's letter to Timothy and his instruction to Timothy is how to handle the apparently large amount of widows that made up the church in Ephesus. And the issue specifically at hand was who was the church financially responsible for long term and who were they not? And the, the church in Ephesus had been placed under uh, a high financial burden due to the amount of widows present and resources would have been limited. So the last time we gathered then, we learned that Paul um, told Timothy that the church was only to provide for widows under two circumstances. One was in verse 5, they must be left alone, which defined, the definition of left alone was uh, there was no extended family present to support them, whether it be children or grandchildren. The second principle was found in verse 5 and 6, 
basically, in, in my words, they had to exemplify a godly character whose life was marked by prayer. And so they weren't just to provide to any widows. They were ones who basically surrendered their lives to Christ and had lived it out in their, in their past. And so these were really important features to be provided for. When a widow didn't have a, sorry, when a widow did have a family of dependents, or um, then the church was to be relieved. And if they didn't live a godly life uh, in the past, then the church was relieved. And that was the way it went. So those are the conditions we saw last time. Uh, today we pick up seven more attributes in verses 9 through 10 that were necessary for the church to support widows in long-term care. Before we dive in, though, I do want to say this. Not all, not all people, like whether it be commentaries, scholars, or pastors, agree that the list in verses 9 through 10 is a continuation of attributes for those who should be supported by long-term care. And I should tell you that because you may listen to certain individuals who you respect and um, have like uh, voices on 1140 radio and whatnot, and you might hear them preach on this and they will contradict some of the things I'm going to say today. But uh, they, some people believe that verses 9 through 10 are not a list of a con continuation of long-term support, but this is a list of ministering widows. These were, this was a list, there was apparently some kind of uh, ministering order in Ephesus where widows had a, job, had a job task to do. So they served alongside elders and deacons in some kind of leadership. And if you wanted to be put on the leadership role of the, of the church and you were to serve in the church, these are the qualities that had to be present. So you do need to know that's one of the uh, um, thoughts out there. And they substantiate it by saying that the list is very similar to elders and deacons in chapter 3. Notice it says you have to be the husband of one wife. We saw that in elders and deacons. Practice hospitality. We saw that in elders. Uh, an emphasis on good works. Again, that's elders and deacons. So because of these leadership qualifications, they, they jumped to the conclusion that there must have been some sort of uh, leadership uh, positions for them possible in the church as well that served alongside them. But one of their biggest supports is extra biblical evidence. <laughs> and they say that there are particular writings found in the second century that showed that a special group of women served in the church in some kind of capacity alongside the leadership. I don't believe uh, that this is an accurate understanding of the text, and uh, if you want to know my substantiations in detail, I can share them with you in the dialogue, but I don't want to spend my time doing it here right now. But um, let me just leave you with one thought. The Word of God is sometimes complicated to understand, but it's not impossible. I don't think anyone would come to that conclusion at the first reading of this text that there's a ministering order of widows. The language and the way it's structured, your brain just wouldn't even go there. I don't think it's a natural reading. So, Gordon Fee also, a uh, uh, guy who went through all the, uh, a commentator and a scholar and a region college professor, read all those texts that people used to support them, went through them all, the second century texts, and says he would never come to those conclusions based on the reading of those extra biblical texts. So these are just some things to consider. So let's look at uh, what I believe, and I think the Word of God is accurately portraying here, with the further qualifications of support for long-term widows. First is that not to be less than 60 years old, in verse 9. So why 60? Well, everyone I, I could get my hands on in terms of like studying for this agreed that in that culture, that was the age associated with old age. That's the, that was the associated norm for old age in that time. But, and the thing is, it's similar for us as well, isn't it? We have the exact same thing. 
Uh, if I were to ask you what, what is considered like, you know, senior age in, the, in our culture, old age, we would probably agree at 65. And where do we get that from? Because that's where McDonald's will start offering you discounts at that age if you go for coffee. And, uh, and that's the age of supposedly retirement, hence the whole attraction to that one commercial, Freedom 55, let me get you 10 years ahead of the time in terms of your life of luxury and comforts. Some places actually do, I think, even acknowledge 60 years old in our culture now. But so you get the idea, even in our culture, we have 60 to 65, it's like an old age kind of idea where they've paid their dues in terms of life and family and work and whatnot. But um, I think what Paul's got in mind here is really this, is that at this age, um, by 60, the, the, your, your strongest years of work are behind you, right? Not that you can't work at 60 and whatnot, but in terms of like, you know, your primary years, like most people on the construction sites are 25 years old, they're not 65 years old, right? And it's because, again, your strongest years are behind you. But Paul probably most likely has in mind here, this is the age in which a widow would unlikely seek to be married. They'd unlikely seek remarriage. And Paul is concerned about this. In verse 11, he says, Refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires and disregard for Christ, they want to get married. So younger women who've been married and are now widowed do have a desire for intimacy with a man. By 60, um, not that that can't be possible or desired, but it's waned, and it's less likely that that's going to be an occurrence. They're not going to seek remarriage, so therefore it's safer to put a woman on the list at that age to be taken care of by the church because she will be a long-term uh, ongoing support for them. Second is uh, she must be the wife of one man have, or having been the wife of one man. Uh, we looked at what this means in detail, wife of one man, we did the eldership uh, list. This did not mean that she only had to be married once. Um, <laughs> for example, in verse 14, Paul encourages younger widows to get remarried. I highly doubt, and don't even think for a second, that if, if he encourages remarriage, and then say 20 years later, her that husband passed away and she had no children, that she couldn't be re put on the list because she quote unquote broke the command to get for this, to be the husband of one wife, of one man. So it didn't mean married only once, she could have been married more than once. Second, it didn't mean that she was necessarily, uh, had never been divorced. Matthew 5 clearly spells out, if you're a victim of adultery, one can remarry. So the context really here is the wife of one man is someone who's faithful and devoted to her husband through the days of her marriage. The next thing Paul lists in verse 10 though is having a reputation for good works and he actually spells out these works in four different categories. The first one he says is if she's brought up children. If she's brought up children. Now that Greek word for brought up means to rear, to rear, to rear a family. So this is not just to have children and ship them off, this is to actually have them and raise them. To raise them for a significant portion of their life. So she wasn't to be a career woman. She was to one who had embraced the role of motherhood and taken the, 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 the role of being in the home and raising her children at heart. And we know this is a problem of the Nephesus, don't we? We've learned this. In chapter 4, verse 3, what were the false teachers say, suggesting to do? They were for, they're saying, you, we are forbidding marriage. We're forbidding it. By forbidding marriage, you forbid having children in, God, in God's standards, because that's the proper environment to have family. And so and that's what's going on in Ephesus. And so uh, he's saying, no, the opposite is true. You actually get married and you do have family. And you raise them. 
Also, that's the context of 2.15, about um, these, these women, when Paul makes the, the comment here. Um, he says, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children to continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. This whole thing about women in, in pastoral roles. Again, the women in Ephesus were forsaking their God-given role as mothers to pursue a life of eldership and to try to be these teachers. And, and Paul says, we'll have none of that because uh, you're forsaking your role. Your role is to be basically uh, take care of your family and to uh, be a worker in the house. Again, not that she couldn't work on a little bit on the side and make pocket money, but her primary emphasis was to be the household. How about the uh, fourth quality, being hospitable to strangers in verse 10. Again, the qualification of an elder. Uh, this is someone who would be known for opening up their home, uh, obviously providing food and lodging. And uh, the key here was not just within their own social circle and those they were comfortable with, it says that they were hospitable to strangers. That's an important word, hospitable to strangers. So these would probably be like traveling missionaries that would have come through town and uh, were spreading the gospel throughout the Roman Empire and needed a place to stay. And these um, women in their, in their prime with uh, their families and whatnot were opening up their houses and providing food and lodging to these people. There's actually a guy by the name of Gaius, or Gaius, and in John, Third uh, John, he's actually praised for being one to open up his home and providing for traveling missionaries. He's contrasted to a guy named uh, Diotrephes, who's reprimanded for his actions because he would not take people in and would put people out of the church who did so. And so we get this uh, notion that this is an important thing for women as well. Uh, fifthly, they were to wash the saints' feet in verse 10. Now. Probably in that culture, that was a literal interpretation. <laughs> Little interpretation. We know it's a dry and dusty climate, and uh, people uh, didn't have access to the hygiene that we have today as quickly as we do with running water and stuff. Like, as, as, you know, we didn't have a tap they could turn on and fill it with wells and whatnot. But so it's probably literal. Uh, we know this because in 1 Samuel 25, we see a woman by the name of Abigail uh, washing David's men's feet. Uh, we see a prostitute in Luke 7 uh, washing Jesus' feet. Uh, feet with her tears in her hair and then turns to the Pharisee and says, you didn't even wash my feet when I walked into your house. Again, there was this expectation of something being done. And of course, John 13 at the Lord's Supper where um, Jesus gives a demonstration of humility and servanthood there. So literally, it probably meant that, washing the saints' feet. But to apply it to our context, if we take it in a figurative sense, it would just mean someone who is known from doing menial tasks. The jobs that, that nobody else wanted to do. The tasks that required a servant's heart. And uh, one of, a sign of someone who had humble service and as an attitude. So it was the kind of woman then who would be willing to serve the Christian community in menial ways. And had a heart willing to perform humble tasks. And that's the kind of widow that was to be supported. Six, she was to assist those in distress in verse 10. Uh, that word is interesting. That's, in Greek, it actually means to squeeze or to press. So if you think of like an orange and you want to get the juice out, you're squeezing it and pressing it to get it out. So this is a picture of someone under huge pressure uh, or under, like, you know, under strain. And so uh, we don't know exactly know what Paul has in mind here. He doesn't spell out what those afflictions or distress, distress, distresses look like. 
but we, uh, we know that it was someone, this widow was obviously helping people who were in difficult situations and was willing to step up whenever needed. And seventh, uh, it says in verse 10, uh, she was devoted herself to every good work. So Paul includes with an all-inclusive statement here. Verse 10 ends in the same way it begins. In verse, uh, in verse 10 he says, um, having a reputation for good works, to start off the paragraph, and at the end he says, has devoted herself to every good work. So it's like a summary statement. This tells us, this told me something, though I learned something new this week in studying, that this list of qualifications was not meant to be an exhaustive list. Because if he says, has devoted herself to every good work, means that there's probably other things they had in mind. But at the very least, Paul wanted to get these things down as a, as a model of a godly woman. And these are the kind of characteristics necessary for a woman to have long-term support from the church. And I think that's critical too. We're not talking about one-offs and handouts. We're talking about someone who's completely dependent on the church for their financial care and their, and their livelihood. And so these are the kind of women that you support. So who didn't qualify? Well, we'll pick that up in verse 11. But refuse to put those younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married. That's incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. The first thing that Paul points out as to why these younger women weren't to be put on the list was this. Due to their sexual desires, these younger widows would want to get remarried and as a result in some way would dishonor the Lord. They would in some way abandon their faith in Him. Now this seems like a contradiction at first. We need to deal with this. You see, Paul here says they've incurred condemnation by getting remarried. But in verse 14, he says, therefore, I want younger widows to get married. <laughs> so in 14, he's saying, get married. But in verse 11, he's saying, you're, you're condemned because you do. So how do we answer this apparent contradiction? Well, we have to first have to say this, that in verse, um, in, verse uh, in Corinthians, we know that singleness was something that Paul recommended for widows. He did say, to be single for the kingdom is a good thing, but if you have sensual desires, you can get remarried. And he says it's actually better that you do so, so you don't end up in trouble. But then he makes one other caveat. He says, you, they must be a believer. So they weren't to marry just anybody. They had to be a believer in the Lord. So when we learn this, by the fact that Paul then turns around and says not to get married in verse 11, we learned that Paul's central concern then is not remarriage. He's not concerned with remarriage, but in that by remarrying, somehow these women brought condemnation upon themselves and in some way broke their allegiance to Christ. That was the issue. And the clue is given by understanding the word pledge. The word pledge. And my computer is seized. For some reason. Okay. Now the word pledge to you sounds like making a vow, right? Like just like that's what it means. Just uh, I, I pledge allegiance to the flag, that kind of thing. The word pledge in Greek is actually the word uh, pistis, which is the same word for faith. Actual salvation, the, the faith in the gospel. The same word is used in First Timothy two, 
He says to Timothy, my true child in the faith, same word as pledge, grace, peace, and mercy from God the Father in Christ Jesus. In verse 19, this I command and trust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with you, the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight and keep the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith. Same Greek word. This is important because now we have to discuss in what way did they break faith? How did they break their faith? I'll give you three options and um, I'll give you my suggestion of what I think is the right one, but I can't prove it from the text. As the commentators rightly noted, um, it's a pretty, the specifics are not given in here, so it's difficult to find out what Paul's really driving at. But some people believe it's a pledge. They broke their faith in terms of faithfulness to their first husband. So they, you know, in a moment of grief, as, they, as their husband passed away, they'd be sitting there going, you know what, um, you know, I'll never marry ever again. And I'll, you're the only man for me, that type of thing in the moment of grief. And then, you know, a year and a half later, after the grieving process is done, going, man, like, I sure want male companionship. And all of a sudden, they go and get remarried. Well, I would suggest that's not a right understanding of the text. Just again, because in verse 14, Paul does not ever view uh, remarriage as breaking any vow. Some people believe it's a pledge of celibacy that a woman made in order to be put on the list, and then she broke it. So she comes before the church and she says, I vow never to get married, and by that, I'll be supported by you full time. And so the church goes, okay, since you pledged to not get remarried, uh, we will support you. You have to know that that's probably the most commonly held view, and I've heard, I've heard people actually preach and say that's exactly what's going on here. Um, uh, I, would, I would suggest, um, I don't think personally, even though it's the most common view, that's what's going on either, only because it's pretty harsh language for Paul to do in regards to them by doing this. So for example, he calls them, he says that by doing so they've followed Satan in verse 5. I can't see Paul saying that if a woman pledged to not get remarried before the church for full-time support and then broke that, then he would call her, call her basically satanic in her actions for doing so. That's a pretty harsh language. Because again, if I was an elder in the church and a woman came to me and said, you know what, I promise never to get married. Uh, my goal is just to serve the Lord. And then two years later, she came to me and said, Andrew, you know, I've been, I really thought I could do this, but um, I realize actually I can't. I actually desire male companionship, um, you know, I think you know, it's time for me to come off the list and uh, another husband support me. I wouldn't say, you've turned and followed Satan. <laughs> I wouldn't pull that card on them uh, as my reprimand. So again, I don't think that is what's actually going on here. But again, it's the most commonly held view, and, and so if you hold that view, uh, I'm not going to take offense if you rebuttal me in the dialogue. So what does it mean? I suggest it actually means her faith and devotion to Christ. Her faith and devotion to Christ. She's actually, and somehow by remarrying, basically said, God, I don't want you anymore. Christ, I don't care what you say and how you've told me to live my life. I'm not interested in what you have to say. How would that happen? Well, the word sensual desires here basically means wanton pleasure. This is to be unrestrained sexually. So what she probably did is that in her sensual desires she decided to probably go after and marry a non-believer in order to fulfill her, the desires that she had. So she thought, you know what? I, I don't, there's not many Christian men around or something, or whatever the circumstances are. She has these desires and she goes off and marries a non-Christian. 
And so we know how disastrous that can be, but that's one way you'd abandon the Lord. Because the Lord is very clear in Scripture, do not marry, do, as a Christian person, do not go and marry an, a non-Christian person. We are warned about this, and Scripture gives us examples of how disastrous this can be. Remember Deuteronomy 7? This is this command to Israel. He says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Not they might turn and just, you know, play the game. They will. They will turn. You're not going to have the power in your own, like, to, 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 to defeat their, their constant uh, pull on your life to follow their, 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 their gods. Great example was Israel did fall. That's why they were exiled to Babylon. They married, intermarried. They couldn't, they couldn't do it, and they followed after these gods. Solomon was a great example. The wisest men ever to live could not resist the temptation of the foreign women. Couldn't do it. And I don't know about you, but I'm not prepared to stand up and say I'm wiser than Solomon at this current stage of my life. So if Solomon couldn't do it, I'm just going to take God's word that I can't do it either. Okay? So this is what happened in terms of their issue. Now, I do need to make a statement about mixed marriages. There are times when two people as non-Christians get married, and during the marriage, one person becomes a Christian. We're not speaking against that. Because that's, that's something that occurs uh, some, somewhat frequently. And we're not saying that God's condemning that and accusing you of falling after Satan. Um, Paul's instruction in Corinthians is when an unbeliever wants to stay in the marriage, you stick it out. But if the unbeliever wants to leave, let them leave in peace. So again, it's not, that it's, 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 uh, it's not a giving enemy, the enemy a, uh, an issue of reproach like in verse 14 or falling after Satan like in verse 15. These are just circumstances of life. So anyway, so that's what I think is going on. Those are the three options. These are the three options, and uh, you're, you're free to choose which one. But probably what's happening is they're, they're abandoning their faith in Christ by going after non-Christian women. Again, no, no more, there's no details, so it's very, very difficult to understand. Second reason, though, the women are not to be put on the list was because they were leading ungodly lives. They were just leading ungodly lives. Look at uh, verse 13. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house. Not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Remember the category of a godly woman? She's to be devoted to prayer and good works, right? And all the list in verses 9 through 10. Here, these younger widows were devoted to being lazy, to being idle, and they were getting in trouble and becoming gossipy in the homes they were visiting. They had nothing but free time on their hands, and so they were becoming a nuisance. I like what Gordon Fee said. He said uh, in his commentary, he says, instead of being productive for the kingdom, they're being destructive to the kingdom. <laughs> All right? So Paul has a remedy for this in verse 14. I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Paul, again, it's important in the context. Paul's... Uh, Instruction for women to get married was not so much a command. It wasn't, it wasn't like in every instance you're commanded to, because again, he thinks celibacy is a good thing. But it was really a corrective to the Ephesian situation because these women couldn't be celibate. 
So in that case, it was better for them to get married, have a family, and devote themselves to their home rather than being tempted to turn against Christ, become lazy and sticking their nose in everyone else's business. And it's funny, I was, as I was reading this, it's interesting that the contrast in terms of the home life. A godly woman, where does she put her emphasis? In her home. Where does the ungodly woman put her emphasis? In everybody else's home. <laughs> okay. She can't, so the woman, the godly woman puts her nose down in her home. The other woman puts her nose in everybody else's home. And so he's making a huge contrast in terms of the home life and where things are occurring. Pretty cool. Uh, in, just an interesting observation. And it wasn't hypothetical. He wasn't saying, if this happens in your church, do this. He's saying, this is happening in the church. Verse 15, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Some have already, uh, you know, again, if, if my suggestion is right, that they've married unbelievers, have already broken their, their, their pledge to Christ in terms of how relationships are to look. If they're gossiping and they're busy bodies and so on, they're already breaking the Lord's commands in terms of how to control their tongue. So again, they've already turned aside to follow the devil's ways in terms of how a woman is to operate. Finally, in verse 16, though, Paul makes one more point as to the provision for widows and how it's to look in the church. He says, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widowed indeed. We learned through this process then there was a system of family in place in Ephesus that was to take responsibility for the widows first before the church even got involved. We saw the grandchildren and the, and the children in, uh, in the earlier verses, the emphasis on the male, whoever does not provide for his own, especially for his household is denied the faith. So again, the male is an emphasis. Here we have a situation where there, there might be the woman who is, um, there might be a daughter or a grandchild or someone who does have the financial means uh, and is doing quite well or maybe is wealthy on the side. And if they have the means, they can actually take care of them as well. But again, the whole point is this for Paul. The family doesn't get involved. The church does not get involved until all family uh, resources are checked upon. So again, like I said before, um, this is a very specific situation to Ephesus. Uh, and uh, it's hard to always know how to apply everything to our church. For example, how many widows are in Genesis House? <laughs> Zero. How many younger widows... Our, cause, our idols and busybodies in Genesis house, zero. So therefore, you think it doesn't apply. Well, it, it can still apply because things like this can occur in the future for us. But also, there are principles that we can take in place that are important to look at. So the first one is this. Financial discrimination is often necessary in Christian charity. You can't get away from that. Can't get away from it. It... it you know, I, I represent, uh, I, I, love the, I love the church and I, rep I love, um, you know, not just our church, but other churches and other denominations. And I, I'm grateful for the kingdom of God and how it's, it's more than just us. But one thing that drives me nuts is when I intermingle with other Christians and they think that uh, all charity is to be spread across equally. And we need to be supporting this and supporting this and supporting this and supporting that. That's not what's going on here. In Ephesus, there were actually widows that weren't being put on the list that were attending there. They were tending there. Again, because they, they had to have a criteria that financial resources had to be put to the right uses. What's the most important thing for the Lord? The spread of the gospel message. 
It's part of the gospel message. We're going to come to this next week, but it talks about elders getting paid. If you put all the if you put all the resources to Christian charity over here and you can't support your leadership, you're off balance in the church. Your, your, your money needs to go to evangelistic efforts and so on and so forth. We have to be able to look at these lists and go, okay, we can't just support everything we want to just because we think we should. We have to look at the scriptures and go, discrimination is often necessary in Christian charity. Acts 11, Agabus stands up a prophet and he says, there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem that's coming. And when they came to, to, to Jerusalem, they had the, the people who brought the money bypassed many people who were hungry and starving in that famine. They went right to the believers in Jerusalem and took care of them first. There's a priority in God's system in terms of financial provision, and we can't get around it. And we have to think in our churches too, in Genesis houses, as needs arise, we have to think about how we use our resources in these ways. Second one. Marrying non-believers as a follower of Christ is severely warned against by the scriptures. Deuteronomy 7, don't do it. If you do, they will turn your heart. Right? If I'm correct in my understanding of this passage and these women were abandoning their faith in Christ by going after non-Christians, then again, here's another verse. But again, this is, uh, I can't prove it, but that's what I think is going on here. First Corinthians, or in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, I should have looked up the source, but it says in one of those places, do not, uh, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So again, it's not because God's angry and trying to limit your, your uh, freedom. He actually loves you and wants to protect you from a life of heartache. <laughs> That's what he's trying to do. And finally, apart from being generally devoted to every good work, good deed, the resume of a godly wife includes being faithful to her husband, Raising children, being hospitable, humbly serving other Christians, and helping those in distress. That's the resume of a godly wife. And it's just an encouragement to you ladies to... Because, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lie that goes through your, your heads a lot. At least when you're younger and you've had children and you come from the workforce. That you're not doing enough. That you're not enough. You go for coffees and suppers with your girlfriends that you used to work with and... They talk about their careers and their jobs, and you're sitting there feeling, well, I'm just a simple old housewife. I'm doing nothing. I'm contributing nothing. I'm just doing the mundane every day. And you know what? The Lord says, you're doing a good thing. You're doing the right thing. You're a godly woman. In fact, if you lose your husband, the church will take care of you long term because you've done those things. <laughs> Pretty powerful. You know, that's the issue right now with the things going on with COVID. I read an article recently that um, uh, this the strain on families right now because they have two working parents. Two working parents. So what happens is the kids are at home now full time with school being out. And they're struggling, the, the, especially the, the female is struggling to balance family and work. She can't do it in the home and so she's not getting her job done but then she's yelling at her kids because they're not getting their school work done. And it's so stressful in the work environment. And now they're trying to figure out ways to to uh, moving forward into the school year about how to take care, to, to you know, bring balance to the families with the working mothers. This is not, a, this is not bragging in any way. This is just like a, just gratefulness to the Lord because I never used to think this way before as a Christian, but I didn't, we don't experience those stresses in Dexter household. We don't experience them because Janice has just embraced the Lord's design for her and so we have no, the transition is easy. We just move on. She continues to do what she's always done, 
and we don't have to worry about her job, her career, anything like that, and her family works really well. And so we weathered the storm during the six months fairly well because, again, just there's built-in consequences to not going God's way of family. And we are, and we're grateful for it, and so it's just a blessing to us. So again, don't let the enemy give you that uh, voice in your head that you're not doing the right thing or that you're not enough because you're, st- you're right in line with what the Lord wants you to do.